Hello. Welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. This podcast is brought to you by audibletrial.com slash headonhistory, which you can head over and get a free audiobook and support this podcast. I hope you are all enjoying this podcast. I'm glad to have you all tune in. Uh, this has been a fun season to record so far. I mean, I say that every season. Which season hasn't been fun? Uh, for those of us that are history nerds, this is you know this is just a fun hobby to have. Um, but this has been an interesting one because we've moved away from Islam and we're talking about the kind of preconditions for Islam, if you will. We're looking at the empires of the ancient Near East, uh, what I call the empires of faith. Based off, based off of a class I've taught in the past, and which I'm actually going to teach again in a couple months, in a few months. So uh, it's been interesting kind of revisiting some of this material, uh, expanding it, changing it, uh, adapting it, and updating it. Hopefully you've been enjoying it. If you have, don't hesitate to head over to iTunes uh, or the podcast app and leave a review. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, and it also helps the podcast grow. The more reviews we get, the more people will find Head on History, and uh, the more the larger our audience the more material that we can bring for you. I have some interesting stuff uh, developing uh, as well. Uh, I just finished uh, an interview with Drew from the Wonders blog, from the Wonders podcast, uh, Wonders of the World. It's a fantastic, fantastic podcast. Um, I've been on there before talking about uh, Jerusalem. But he does an amazing job, so be sure to check him out. I'll uh, I'll put links also in the description as well. Uh, We got an opportunity to chat, and we talked about the Umayyads, and we talked about the Grand Mosque in Damascus. It was a very fun discussion. Drew's a a brilliant guy, and I I just love chatting with him. So it was a really fun conversation. Uh, We have some interviews also planned on this podcast as well, Uh, some specials coming up. We'll see. Those will probably be called Head on History Specials, so they won't break up. uh, the actual uh, narrative, if you will, of, of the podcast itself. You'll still be able to see see the regular kind of episodes, follow that along, and then if you want to tune into the uh, specials, you can check those out. There will be some uh, really prominent historians, uh, professional historians that we'll be working with. We'll be talking about some books. So bear, So, you know, keep an eye out for that. That'll be showing up in a few weeks. But today, what I want to do is go back to our, our topic of empires of faith. We're going to move on from the ancient Israelites to the Achaemenids today. But before we start, I actually got a question from uh, one of our listeners who sent it in from Vince about the Bible as a primary source. And he asked a really fantastic question. of I, the, He was under the impression that the Bible was written after the events. So how could it be a primary source? And that is absolutely correct. You're right. The Bible is written largely after the events that it describes. Or, you know, so there's a few years that pass. We're not sure how long later. It's likely that the Bible is a collection of some oral traditions, which means that some of the stuff was probably contemporaneous, but all of the kind of written components of this is very clearly after the events. So when I say that it's a primary source document, what I mean is that it is a primary source of the time period of the authors. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be entirely accurate in the history that it tells us, but it does say that a narrative emerges, and it helps us act as a sort of testifying or witness to the narrative that emerges after the events. In other words, it is a primary source to help us understand how the Israelite people made sense of their own past. 
So it's not a primary source of the past, but rather a primary source of the of, of the narrative of the past. And this is common in history, that we often are dealing with not necessarily a set of facts, but a set of narratives. And we can still pull meaning out of it. So we can ask, you know, because there's something very interesting about uh, why it references these historical events and what kind of agenda it has. So, for example, in, in our last episode, the biblical quotes that we used all reference events that had already happened. But it's done through the lens of a monotheist, or at least someone who has a, a Yahwist point of view, that is, seeing Yahweh as the supreme God. Some call this the Deuteronomist uh, writer, because there's a sort of thread within the Bible we can see uh, this particular agenda. This tells us something in turn, and how monotheism was a process in itself, and how it emerged later, also on how it was used to you know, make sense of those events. In other words, the narrative that it tries to put forward is taking the past events and putting them within a particular worldview. And that's how I use the Bible as a primary source, with also understanding that there are times where the Bible may not uh, refer to historical events that we have corroborating evidence for, and other times it will reference um, you know, events that there are corroborating evidences for. So, for example, we know that the biblical narrative narrative of the Israelite people coming kind of under the domination of the Assyrian Empire is written later in the Bible, probably during captivity or after captivity, we start to see the, the records of it. But we know that there is contemporaneous evidence, for example, the inscriptions of the Assyrians that show, uh, for example, King Jehu of the Israelites kneeling and prostrating himself before uh, Shalamanser III. So that would act as a sort of corroborating primary source evidence. But for the Bible, I'm more interested in the kind of narrative component of the Bible and what, what it's trying to do with historical events. And that's as equally important for historical historians um, as a record of the events. And we, in particular, when we talk about Islam, this becomes very important as Muslim historians are very consciously creating narratives, and so does Herodotus and others. So there is a kind of, you know, divergence in historical writings. You have the kind of, on one end, the Tacitus school, if you will. This is an attempt to create an annal, a chronicle. Here are the events. Here's what's going on. And then you have a sort of narrative uh, a version of history that we find in Herodotus, Suetonius, uh, in the Muslim world under Al-Tabari, uh, who creates kind of a grand narrative. And both of them are important for historians, but they act as different sources. They act predominantly as primary sources from the author's time and how the author remembers the past. Hopefully that answered your question. It's a bit of a convoluted answer, uh, but that that is it's an important one to answer, and it's a part and parcel with, with how historians deal with documentation and evidence, always with a kind of critical eye, uh, acknowledging that every time we're dealing with any event in the past and any record of the ba- past, whether it's written down later or it's contemporaneous, those primary sources will always have agendas, perspectives, and contexts all their own. Um, and it is interesting to recognize that and to also acknowledge that in the kind of narrative that, that emerges. So fantastic question. Thank you for advance. Uh, it really gave us an opportunity to, to clarify and dig deeper on the Bible as a source. So let's pick up today with the Jews in captivity. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, they had the practice of kind of displacement of people. They did this mostly to ensure people 
didn't rise up. And they would move people around uh, around the empire as they sort of saw fit. And like, okay, we'll move you here and we'll, we'll pick you up and move you there. This is one way of kind of breaking up of family bonds and kinship bonds and loyalty bonds in order to ensure that people would remain either loyal to the empire or would be incorporated in the empire elsewhere. And this is what they did with the uh, early Israelite people. They had uh, displaced them from Jerusalem, from the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and took them into captivity. Now, this worked for a while for the Assyrians, but eventually the empire faced an uprising kind of from within. In the 7th century BCE, the Persians, who were really kind of a group of people, not a singular people, um, from the southwest Iranian plateau, they begin to conquer local dynasties like the Medes. Um, the Persians were a collection of kind of tribes from Parsis, and later kind of uh, Iranian nationalist or Persian nationalist uh, histories will try to create a singular uh, group that existed from ancient times to modern Iran, and that would not be accurate. The ancient Persians are not the same people as the contemporary Persians uh, or the contemporary Iranians, and that's very important to remember that modern nationalist identities uh, are really kind of made up. They're imagined. They draw on older histories to justify contemporary politics and identity, but there isn't a singular link, you know, unbroken chain that goes back from ancient Persia to contemporary Iran in the same way that there's no way that the ancient Romans are the contemporary Romans. Firstly, because the ancients didn't see themselves as singular people. They saw themselves as rather diverse and how they identified were complicated. Uh, what we consider ethnic groups was not really a salient factor in the ancient world. Uh, most likely, they, when we say Persian or Medes, we might be referring to language groups or we'll be talking about kingdoms or a coalition of tribes, they're not homogenous in the way that we think that they were. Um, the past is actually far more messy and complicated and diverse than kind of modern narratives about it uh, reveal. So that's important to remember. When we say Persians, we're really kind of talking about a collection of tribes from Parsis um, that may not have been as homogenous as people think, but they had probably some uh, cultural uh, commonalities and linguistic commonalities. Now, this original kind of collection was actually a vassal kingdom, probably of the Medes, and they were unified by Cyrus, the or Kurus, or Sirius, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, who was a descendant of this guy named Achaemenes, and Achaemenes is where the and the empire actually gets its name. Achaemenids comes from that. Now, Cyrus is a descendant of a monarchy that saw itself as a vassal of another bigger monarchy, the Medes, who in turn were kind of under the hegemony of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The kind of mythic origin of Cyrus is, states that there was there was a there was a king, Astyages, 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 whatever something of the sort, right? Uh, and he had this prophecy, and he summoned his daughter and demanded that Mithrades kill the baby that was in her womb. This was Cyrus or Gurus, but Mithrades couldn't do it. Mithrades took the child back and raised it at his, as his own child. His son, you know, was a uh, stillborn, and so he, he raised the baby as his own. At one point, Cyrus, who was noble and royal and regal from the very beginning, he has a shepherd boy beaten because the boy would not obey his commands. And Astagis is kind of like, what the hell is this guy doing? And so he summons this boy to him, and asking him, who do you think you are? Who the hell do you think you are, B? 
beating this other shepherd boy. Turns out it's Cyrus. And so he's like, oh, Mithridates tricked me. So, you know, he kind of sends Cyrus back to Persia to live with his biological parents, his mother and whatnot. But Astagius uh, summons the, the son of Hipparchus in retribution for this kind of... Uh, act that he did, is this betrayal between Hipparchus and Mithridates. And what he does is he summons this son and he chops him up into little pieces, roasts some of it and cooks the others and makes the his advisor eat it. Basically, you know, cannibalizing uh, the, the child. This was act, seen as an act of horrible cruelty. But this kind of narrative, this story, right, of a, of a child who's going to be killed by his uh, grandfather, who's going to be killed by this king, but then he is secretly raised, that's a common motif that we find in a lot of kind of origin stories of monarchs, a kind of superhero origins, if you will. They all uh, face some type of persecution from early on, and it shapes their upbringing. And then eventually they're revealed to be truly great because they've been, you know, regal throughout their lives because there's something inherent about them. But also this particular story, the idea of, you know, chopping up someone's child and feeding it to them. That's straight up Walder Frey status. That's that's Frey Pies right there, you know? For those of you that are Game of Thrones fans, you would recognize this story, right? Arya does the same shit to, to Walder Frey. Uh, I should have probably spoiler alerted that, but, you know, that is several seasons ago. Who cares? Um, but this is a very common motif. And this was seen also as an act of utter cruelty, an act of violence, you know, of a very not just a normer of violence, but going above and beyond. And so by 540 BCE, Cyrus had established himself as the monarch of the Persians. And he had taken over from Astagius, who was this cruel monarch. And in turn, he was seen as the sort of righting of the wrongs. You know, here he was, a persecuted boy who raised, who's raised up and overthrows the tyrant, the tyrant who had been ruling, this man who fed children to their parents, uh, this persecuted babies. And he always right in the world because Cyrus was ordained to take over and fix this corruption. That's at least the mythic origins of Cyrus. We have no idea if any of that actually happened, but it makes for a pretty good story. It also tells us a little bit about how Cyrus saw himself. This is a man who saw himself as ordained to rule, and by 540 BCE, he captures local kingdoms. He takes uh, Elam first, forcing the Elamites to submit to him. He overthrows the Medes, and so in southwest Iranian plateau comes under his power. And eventually, this leads him to marching on Babylon and overthrowing the Neo-Babylonian Empire and establishing himself as the new ruler. So what happens is he takes the territories that were originally Assyrian and then Neo-Babylonian, and he conquers them. He incorporates them into his new empire. He starts off in the southwest of Iran, but he quickly moves up into the Tigris and the Euphrates, overcoming the old empire, but maintaining the old territories. So in some ways, the Achaemenids are kind of a con continuation of the Mesopotamian dynasties that came before, even though they're not from the same kind of Mesopotamian family group. They're not Akkadian, they're not Babylonian, they're not an Assyrian people, they're a Persian people from southwest Iranian plateau, but they come in and they overtake the Mesopotamians. And what's interesting is that they do see themselves, Cyrus does see himself as a continuation of what came before. He is not something new. In fact, he proclaims himself king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four corners of the world. This is fascinating.
Why is this interesting? Because we're interested in this podcast particularly between the relationship between religion and uh, kingship. Religion and imperial ideology. What we see in Cyrus is the first real, or I would say one of the first, real articulation of a universal kingship. Not just the king of an empire, but the king of the four corners of the world. He is the king of Babylon, the king of Sumer, and the king of Akkad. In other words, there is a sort of uh, imagining of integration, of bringing in these disparate threads, of bringing in Sumer, of bringing in Akkad, of bringing in the Persians, and weaving them together into an empire. In this way, he sees himself as both continuing what came from the past, but also integrating geographically or ethnically, if you will. He sees himself as a universal king, and universal kingship is one that sees itself as or, or articulates a sense that the king rules over the world, not over an empire, not over a kingdom, but over everybody. This is the king of everyone in the world. So this is the kind of first articulation uh, or uh, expression of kind of world domination, if you will, but not in the supervillain sense, but very much in the sense of, I am the king of the world. Building on what came before, drawing in the threads of the past, drawing in the geographic threads into one kingship. Now, we see this also really kind of uh, articulated and really expressed and, and codified in what's known as the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder is an object with uh, a kind of cylindrical object with writing on it, and it is a proclamation by Cyrus the Great, written in cuneiform. Likely what would have happened with the Cyrus Cylinder is that it would have been pressed onto other clay and rolled so that you could have uh, writing, so that the writing could be kind of spread out onto other clay, or as a physical object it would remain uh, as, as a testament through time of Cyrus's writing. The, the cylinders are very interesting. We've, we see this commonly used in the Near East as kind of something written on a clay object and then rolled out onto, onto later onto paper, but originally onto other forms of clay. Now, in this, in this Cyrus cylinder, one of the things he says, the gods who lived within them left their shrines. So in other words, the gods of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, etc., who lived within them left their shrines. In other words, they were abandoned by their gods. Then Marduk, he took the hand of Cyrus, king of the city of Anshan, and called him by his name, proclaiming him aloud for the kingship over all of everything. He made the land of Guti and all the Median troops prostrate themselves at his feet while he shepherded in justice and righteousness the black-headed people from whom he had uh, put under his care, that would be the Assyrians. Marduk, the great lord who nurtured his people, saw with pleasure his fine deeds and true heart and ordered that he should go to Babylon. So in other words, what Cyrus does is justify this new empire as being ordained by Marduk himself. That something had happened to the Babylonian, the Assyrians and the Neo-Babylonians. They had done bad things. And by doing so, the gods had abandoned the shrines. Remember, like all, all the Mesopotamian dynasties before them, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they justified their empire by the gods. They were ordained. This was heroic kingship, right? The gods gave them might and they were to express their might. 
but they had done something to earn the displeasure of the gods, and therefore Marduk had turned to Cyrus, who had ordained and given kingship over everything, first the Guti and the Medians, and then eventually the Assyrians themselves. So Marduk didn't just march on Babylon, he was called, I mean, Cyrus didn't just march on Babylon, he was called by Marduk to march on Babylon. And that is fascinating. On one hand, what we're seeing here is a person who is very consciously and deliberately invoking the gods as a blessing. This is universal kingship rooted in the blessings of the gods. But there's also a pluralistic component here. He is not just invoking any god. Who is he invoking? He's invoking Marduk, the god of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He's using the very god that was recognizable for them. He doesn't say some foreign god invited him. He doesn't say that, oh, you know, my god told me to come and conquer you people. Now you need to worship my god. No, it's a very clever imperial strategy. He goes, no, no, your own god summoned me to Babylon. Your own god granted me this blessing. We see the similar language showing up in the Bible as well. Isaiah 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the lions of kings, to open doors before him, that the gates may not be shut. Now, we know that when Cyrus shows up in Babylon, he actually releases the Jews from captivity, and he allows them to return home to Jerusalem and even helps to rebuild the temple. It's now what we call the second temple. This is a fascinating component. So, you know, Isaiah 45 could be seen as maybe a bit of propaganda, a bit of news, you know, the Israelite people blessing Cyrus for freeing them and seeing Cyrus as an agent of the gods. If the Assyrians were the agents of the gods and took the Israelites into, into captivity, so too was Cyrus an agent of the gods. And Cyrus was okay with this. Cyrus uses the language of the people themselves. He frees the Jews from captivity. He conquers the Assyrians. But he does it so with the blessing of the gods of those people. He even says that he goes about and undertakes the process of rebuilding temples. The temples to all these other deities. And he cites Marduk and other gods. Cyrus uses the logic of the conquered people to justify his rule. He's not enforcing a top-down on religion. Here's my religion. You all have to convert. Instead, he's speaking to people in their own cultural and religious language. As a strategy, this is very clever. It ensures that there is a relatively smooth transition of power. It also, in the same way that it weaves the threads of the past empires and the kind of geographic you know, vast geographic distances into a singular empire, it also weaves in the cosmology and mythos of other people. This new Achaemenid empire has room for Yahweh and Marduk all at the same time. It brings them all together. This is a pluralistic view of religion. That said, that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you, know, Yah, you know, Cyrus worshipped Yahweh or even that he worshipped Marduk. We actually don't know what evidence, you know, there isn't clear evidence what his religion was. We don't know what his personal beliefs were. But it's likely that he was a Zoroastrian and that most of the empire 
under the Achaemenids adopts at the imperial level Zoroastrianism. And this perhaps helps to explain a little bit about why the Achaemenids were religiously pluralistic. In addition to being a clever imperial strategy and a way of justifying universal kingship, well, I've been ordained by Yahweh and Marduk and so on, it also is probably part and parcel with Zoroastrianism. Um, Zoroastrianism was founded by Zoroaster, a holy man or prophet, and was established from the 2nd millennia BCE to five to the 5th century BC, so a long kind of period of time. It's grounded in a sort of uh, textual tradition known as the Avestas. The Avestas are uh, a series of hymns, written hymns, uh, dedicated to uh, the Zoroastrian deities. It has a dualistic view of the world and probably would be considered the world's first example of monotheism. And it's possible that Zoroastrianism has some influence on Judaism uh, in and perhaps, uh, you know, um, the emergence of monotheism. We know, for example, that Judaism or at least early Israelite religion draws heavily from the Babylonians. You know, the, the language of Hammurabi shows up in the Bible. It's also very possible that while that as a result of you know the captivity the, the attempt to kind of justify or make uh, legible the experience of captivity and the encounter with the Achaemenids that monotheism is a result of the kind of interaction and engagement that's not to say monotheism was simply borrowed from from Zoroastrians no but rather that there was a sort of conversation or dialogic process in which monotheism is expressed in a uniquely Israelite fashion that is the idea idea of Yahweh, but that they might have encountered the idea earlier on from Zoroastrianism. This dualistic view of the world in which there is a high god known as Ahura Mazda, and he creates the world. He is the supreme being, the supreme force in all the universe. He's usually depicted in reliefs as a sort of a great king with a winged ring, you know, and he's in that ring. Uh, and often we'll see him kind of floating above monarchs on reliefs as a way of demonstrating uh, his, him giving blessings or sometimes he'll be shown actually handing a wreath of some sort or a ring of authority to the king, often referred to as Farz in, in, in the Persian language. But he is opposed by a force of corruption known as Angrumainu, this, this kind of evil entity. Now, this evil entity is kind of a god of evil, but he's not on the same level as Ahura Mazda. This isn't a, it's a dualism, but it's, there's still a singular deity. The, um, it's monotheistic with a force of evil also thrown in, in the same way that we might find that dualism show up in medieval Christianity. And again, it's very possible that that dualism was a result of an encounter with the Mediterranean religion of Mithraism. Both Judaism and Islam likely draws from Zoroastrianism. I mentioned this in the first couple seasons of Head on History about how Islam definitely uh, draws from Zoroastrianism when it comes to the prayers, for example, the Salat, that's very Zoroastrian in that regard. Judaism probably draws monotheism a little bit from, from Zoroastrianism. And the dualism vis-a-vis -vis the messianic version of Zoroastrianism, known as Mithraism, that really takes root in late antiquity and the Roman world, uh, probably influences Christianity. We know, for example, that Saturn or December 25th, the, the birthday of Jesus, was probably originally the birthday of Mithras. So this is a very ancient religion that has a lot of influences. And this kind of dualistic view uh, in, introduces a cosmology that shows that, that emphasizes balance, balance between order and chaos. You have Ahura Mazda on one side representing light and truth and justice and goodness. This is known as Asha. And uh, his priests, the Maubeds or the Magi, would tend fire altars in his name. 
name. You know, fire and water was considered sacred as symbols of truth, justice, light, and goodness. Engrumainu, on the other hand, would represent chaos and corruption and evil and lies, uh, known as Duruj. So you had Asha on one side and Duruj on the other side. And the job of the Mobed or the Magi or the priests was to cultivate the Asha, the goodness and the balance, through rituals and hymns and purification and to ward off Duruj or, or evil. In this way, Zoroastrianism was a moralistic religion and it encouraged good and forbidden the bad. So do good things, do good acts and forbid the bad things. Carry out purification rituals that would remove the corruption that Engrumainu had brought onto creation. But as a result of this kind of cosmology in which there is a singular god at the top, you also had the notion that this singular god worked through agents, through angels or, or deities or devas. And this allowed a level of flexibility in the cosmology so that Ahura Mazda would be the supreme god, but at the same time, Yahweh could exist in the empire, Marduk could exist in the empire, Chamash could exist in the empire. So part of the kind of pluralism that I was mentioning about the Achaemenids is an imperial strategy of incorporation and integration to justify the universal kingship. On the other hand, it's also possible that it's a result of Zoroastrianism itself, which was probably quite pluralistic, uh, dynamic, and flexible. But this also introduces something important, that the, the king was a universal king. He was meant to rule over the four corners of the world, that he was supposed to, uh, you know, you know, or to be God's agent on earth, Ahura Mazda's agent on earth. But he only was so because he brought justice to the world. So it was a universal kingship rooted in justice and goodness. He was a king so long as he did good. And if he became corrupt and wicked, then he had allowed Engrumainu to take over. In other words, there was an implicit check on the power of the king. And so while the Achaemenids could rule as absolute monarchs, they had to constantly demonstrate that they were just kings, that they were cultivating the good, doing the good, that they were purifying, and that they were forbidding and rejecting the bad. This is why we, you know, some historians see the Achaemenids as kind of the first ancient civilization and ancient empire to really consciously think about human rights, to think about the rights of people, you know, don't oppress the people, don't be tyrannical. Allow people to worship their religion. Now, does that mean that they were tolerant in the way we might think of tolerance today? No. You know, they they suppressed rebellions when they happened. They established military rule. These were vast military empires, but they were more incorporate. They did incorporate more than previous empires did. They were more integrative than more uh, the other empires were, and as a result, they tended to be quite stable. And the people kind of willingly, or at least to some extent, were implicit or gave tacit approval to the Achaemenid rule. This is, is part of the kind of, uh, you know, pluralism as well as this notion of balance and, and, and Asha that we find in Zoroastrianism and that influences the empire more broadly. This results in vast empire building. Cyrus the Great passes away and he passes the, the kingdom to Cambyses II. And Cambyses expands the empire. He goes all the way into Egypt. Now in Egypt he ends up uh, dying and the empire passes on to his brother Bardia. But there's a kind of confusion on whether Bardia is really the real Bardia or he's a fake Bardia. Um, some uh, historians believe that Bardia wasn't a real 
uh, actually was not actually related to Cambyses, and then he was probably a Maubid or a Magi priest known as Gaumada, and Gaumada pretends to be Bardia, but he has a short reign regardless, and eventually it passes off to another branch of the Achaemenids, an uncle or a cousin known as Darius or Darius the Great, and Darius the Great builds this empire to its zenith. He uh, establishes his rule in Egypt. He has the largest road-building project ever. Why do you build roads? Because it allows an ease of movement for your troops. You can allow people to move wherever you need them in the empire. So you have a dynamic empire. You don't need to displace people because your troops can establish order wherever they are. You're able to kind of deploy and mobilize your armies to the far reaches of your empire. And those troops, in turn, represent that kind of pluralistic, integrative component of the Achaemenids. We find, for example, in the Naqshirustum, which is a relief or an inscription on Darius's tomb, that the army that the Achaemenids employed was multi-ethnic, that you had Persians and Medes and Elamites and Arabs and Assyrians and Egyptians and Sogdians and all groups of people. All these troops were integrated into a whole under the Achaemenid Empire. All were part of the Achaemenids. The Achaemenids weren't just ruling over people, they incorporated those people into their empire. The roads also allowed for the first real postal system, allowing you to pass messages very swiftly. This is still an era of chariots, and so you would find chariot riders carrying clay tablets of cuneiform with them, passing messages from one province to the other. And the empire itself, because you had these roads, would be organized in what are known as satraps. And these satraps, or satraps, trapeze, the satraps were governors. So you would have local governors ruling over these various and different provinces under the authority of the king. This allowed for a very dynamic empire. You didn't have to wait for mobilized troops from the capital. You could have your own troops in whatever satrapies you were at. And in those satrapies, if a rebellion happened, you would have immediate troops that you could deploy. You didn't have to wait for the capital. This allowed for a really flexible, dynamic empire. Um, you know, that was connected via economic system, ideology, and even through the postal system and roads. The roads ensured that the satrapies didn't ever truly fully rebel on their own. If you have these kind of autonomous kind of troop formations and garrisons, you didn't want them to ever kind of rebel. So, the, you know, they knew, you know, there was, you had to pay the tax. You had to pay this kind of centralized, standardized uh, tax that would be given to the empire as a, or the central empire has a sign that you were loyal you would give this tribute and that so long as that sort of economic flow happened that flow of money you could maintain relatively autonomous administration by linking things in this way ruling through satrapies by ruling through the ability to deploy your army fast through the road system and through the system of travel, you ensured that the empire was dynamic, that it didn't need to kind of, that you didn't have a sort of central government that would either collapse or fail to mobilize, that these they, that the local satraps could address the local needs, that they could address the local issues, and then when needed, they 
could tap into the power of the of the capital and the capital could enforce its power should this atropies become too autonomous. And that does happen. The kind of unintended consequence of this really dynamic system of governance and administration with a capital in the center and the satraps all around was that uh, sometimes those satrapies would rebel and they would kind of say, well, I want my own kingdom. And we'll see how that becomes a kind of major issue for all empires going forward. But this structure, this structure of a kind of pluralistic, integrative uh, dynasty that kind of incorporates what came before, multi-ethnic, with an appeal towards religious pluralism vis-a-vis -vis the notion of a universal kingship. This structure is what all empires that come after in the ancient Near East try to emulate. We will see that the Parthians try to do this, the Seleucids try to do this, Alexander the Great tries to do this, the Sasanians do this, the Byzantines do this, and even the Muslims will try to do this. And in fact, some of the satrapies, uh, organizations that are developed by the Achaemenids are the exact same under the Muslims. It's the same governor, same government structure, same administration, just... The governor goes from being a Sasanian uh, governor to being a, a Muslim governor. So most of these systems remain from the Achaemenids on. And that's because this is the first real attempt at a world empire, at a universal for empire, at a kingship that rules over everyone. And this kind of strategy or policy of integration and tolerance is also something that we will see in future dynasties. The Muslims, for example, were very keenly aware of the fact that they were a minority religion ruling over a majority population. And so they try to be integrative and cooperate, you know, and, 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 and integrate the people and incorporate the people that they conquer. So you would find that in Muslim administrations, you would find Greek-speaking people, you would find Jews, you would find Christians, you would find Syriacs, you would find all Sasanians, all these kind of older uh, ad administrators and functionaries would be incorporated as a way of ensuring that the empire's transition of power was smooth. And where does that come from? That comes from the Achaemenids. So the Achaemenids have a huge influence on world history and definitely on the empires that come after. The strategies of empire, uh, the, the techniques of empire, the technology of empire is all something that empires after will try to replicate. The road system, the postal system, the ability to move your army quickly but also have relatively uh, autonomous satraps or governorships and provinces is a, is a strategy of successful empire. I'm going to end it here today. Hopefully this was interesting to you. This was just kind of a real brief introduction into the Achaemenids, establishing both their kind of chronology as well as the, the kind of uh, cultural context, the imperial context, and a little bit about the society. We're going to revisit them when we talk about the Greeks, particularly because the Achaemenids become the chief enemy and antagonist of the Greek city-states under Xerxes, who takes over after Darius. And we'll talk about the kind of Greco-Persian wars and the eventual rise of Alexander the Great. Let me know what your thoughts are. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit me up on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. Thanks for tuning in and remember, stay smart and beautiful.